Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. The premise of my book, writes my guest, is that place matters mightily for what people believe to be true. We can better understand why some assertions or propositions or ideas become for some people credible and believable by locating them somewhere on the skin of the earth and by asking what things are to be experienced at that spot and how this place is culturally understood. Or, as he's also put it in a pithier phrase, some places make people believe. Those are the words of Thomas F. Guerin, the Rudy Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Indiana University in Bloomington. They are found in the first chapter of his new book, Truth Spots, How Places Make People Believe, recently published by the University of Chicago Press. Tom, welcome to Historically Thinking. Well, I'm really happy to be here and to have the chance to talk about my book. Well, as I told you when I first uh, read your article in, in Aeon, uh, which we'll uh, link to in the show notes. I knew I had to read the book and knew I had to talk to you, even if only about the article. Um, I've noticed uh, since putting an epigram at the f- front of my first book that epigrams are more important than often I have given them credit for as as a reader. Um, I don't know when you put the epigram there. I ended up actually putting the epigram first and writing to it which I did not expect that I would do. But you have an epigram from Eudora Welty. Let me let me read it. And then I'd like you to explain its importance to what follows. Welty writes, Being shown how to locate, to place, any account is what does most toward making us believe it, not merely allowing us to. May the account be the facts or a lie. What does that mean? Why is that important to you? Well, uh, it's interesting. I think I should say at the outset that I'm not a literary critic. Uh, I am a sociologist, and having an epigram from Eudora Welty is sort of an odd thing uh, for a sociologist to start his book with. Uh, But at the same time, that epigram becomes a kind of uh, uh, what? Uh, It anticipates the entire book. In a way, what I wrote is a footnote to Welty. Uh, I I think that there are a couple of things about that quote that are really important. Certainly what Welty is talking about is something to do with the willing suspension of disbelief. Mm -hmm. How is it that writers of fiction and short stories, novels, uh, get their reader to to believe just for the purpose of enjoying a book or a story? Um, And how do they do that? Uh, You put it somewhere. You put the story in a place and you give all sorts of of embellished details about that place. Somehow the reader then is convinced. Mm -hmm. But she goes beyond that and she says, look, it's not just that it allows us to believe, it makes us believe. And that struck me as the kind of forcefulness that I wanted for an argument. Uh, it's, It's not just a setting. It took place in Bloomington or Charlottesville but somehow Bloomington or Charlottesville mattered for the outcome of of whether or not a reader believes the story or a listener. Um, The other thing she does 
is it's clear that she's not just talking about literary fiction here. When she ends up, um, may the account be the facts or a lie. And that got me thinking, facts, like facts of science? Uh, do they depend on place in the same way that the facts of a novel, in a sense, the story of a novel, depend on a place where it's set? Um, and that got, I was off and running at that point. Mm -hmm. What's... Um... What she indicates, and then what your book follows on with, is not merely a willing uh, suspension of disbelief, but a willed assistance of belief, uh, if we could put it that way. And perhaps I, I like that phrasing. Yeah, and perhaps even sometimes, and this is something that's fascinating me ever since I read about Jerusalem syndrome, um, that there is an unwilling overcoming of other beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, that certain places, uh, Jerusalem syndrome is where people who almost always are atheists go to Jerusalem and have a psychological trauma. Um, they might believe that they are Jesus uh, or some uh, one of the pro Jewish prophets or, 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 or I, don't, I don't know what other, other manifestations of it are. Mm -hmm. But it is, uh, it's a sort of, it, 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 the place has overwhelmed their defenses and, and they are transformed mentally. It sometimes it's usually just a sin. It, it usually passes when they leave, but there's mm -hmm. a I believe there's a clinic in Jerusalem devoted to treating such people. Uh, you know, one thing should be said: Jerusalem was certainly on my list of candidate truth spots to write about. Too big, it's, too big. It's too big, too much, too written over, too many different directions to go. Yeah. But you'd be amazed at the number of people who have read my book and have shared that experience, yeah. and not just at Jerusalem. It could be almost anywhere of significance. Sometimes it's going back to the place they grew up, sometime an important historical event, and they come away saying, my God, it was transformative. Yes. Walking on a pilgrimage trail or something yes. like that. I mean, and the, these that's exactly what I think Welty was trying to get at. Yes. Um, there are three things that you quickly, briskly uh, list as making a place. So let's begin with that. It's uh, nice to begin with definitions, even if we're not a philosopher. Um, <laughs> what, are, what are the three things that make a place? Yeah, when I started on this project or started thinking sociologically about place, um, I, I, I read the literature. And I got to tell you, there's a ton of really abstract and just confusing theoretical stuff out there, much of it French. Uh, forgive me, uh, but it, it's I, I needed something simpler uh, to work with, and I wasn't getting it, so I made up a definition. I said, look, take a place like the Oracle at Delphi. What are, what are three things, if you said it's a place, um, and you describe it that way, what do you mean? And there are, first, it, it's, a, it's a spot on the skin of the globe, right? It is, it is somewhere locatable. It has coordinates on GPS, okay? Secondly, it's the material stuff that's there, both natural and built. You've, you've got temples, you've got Mount Parnassus. There's something about that materiality that is constitutive of what we mean by a place. And finally, it's narrated. It's, 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 um, it becomes the, the basis of stories that give this particular spot meaning and value. And I, I, I've run with those three things. I've never seen any reason to think that I left something out uh, or that one of those three was superfluous. 
um, location, materiality, and narration. Yeah, That's very, a place. Very nice. LMN, too bad, we, too bad we can't make it into an acronym, but it, it's <laughs> it's definitely easy to remember by, by students. Um, and I, I, it's very elegant and succinct. You, you write, let me quote you to yourself, page three of the book. My suggestion is that perhaps these many determinants of credibility are modulated or inflected by the places where an account and a potential believer intersect. Now, as I, I teased you in the, in the notes for this, I, I think that's much more tentative than you actually are. Um, this <laughs> suggestion and perhaps could be eliminated without any damage to the sentence. Um, but what do you what do you mean by that? Many yeah, determinants of credibility are modulated or inflected. That's almost French. <laughs> no, not quite. It, it's <laughs> it's it's too clear to be French. It's true. Um, the uh, uh, look, uh, I said I was a sociologist, so the hesitation there, what you saw as some tentativeness on my part, is a reflection of the fact that in discussing these ideas with my colleagues in the discipline, um, let's say they were not exactly welcomed. Uh, I found that issues of the significance of place were much more easily received among historians and anthropologists. But my colleagues in sociology were never persuaded that place was anything more than a setting or a backdrop, hmm. not an active agent. So the hesitation is a little bit of that. Hmm. Uh, certainly, I could take those words out, but I didn't want to appear... Um, I don't know. Overconfident. Well, your prop, your proper, a proper academic modesty is is attractive. There's no doubt about that. Especially on page three, Al. That's uh, true. Got a whole book. True. Yeah. Uh, but but <laughs> the idea of where an account and a potential believer intersect is crucial. Um, it's sort of where people run into a claim, mm -hmm. where they are and where the claim came from. So the book is heavily geographic. In fact, it's being marketed by Chicago Press as a book in their geography list of all places, um, because it's about the, the situation, quite literally geographic situation, of people who are hearing ideas and the the journey that those ideas have taken although, uh, until they reach that particular potential believer. Well, what, that's a, interesting, uh, that leads to one Interesting uh, question. Then, uh, what separates this from being human geography? Do you have geographers saying to you, "Hey, what, what are you doing approaching on our turf? This is this is our stuff." Uh, you know what? Uh, no problem with poaching. I don't have. Uh, you know, geography unfortunately was one of those fields also that I went into and read and found out that at a theoretical level, they were borrowing from sociology, yeah. Bourdieu and Giddens and uh, Foucault. So I decided that if they were borrowing from my discipline, I could borrow from theirs, and I certainly <laughs> did. I didn't take much from geographers, quite frankly. Hmm. Um, there's a lot in this book that is seat of the pants. Uh, it's written that way. It's not heavily buried in the literature or any theoretical framework. It just wants to take a simple argument and illustrate it. No, it wants to understand. It's uh, phenomenological, I, I think would be. It's It wants to understand the experience of someone who's in a place and believing something and asking how are those two things linked. Um, yep. Um, so, which is, and it, it makes it a very readable book for those who are scared of what sounds like a very theoretical book. This is, as you you say, it's a travel guide in some way. <laughs> it's, it's a tour. Um, and it's... 
It's very short, if I could just hang with the stylistic features of the book. It is. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of different places, and the idea may be uh, unfamiliar, at least to some folks, uh, but it was written to be accessible. Uh, I really, uh, unlike my other work, uh, this is not a 400-page book. It weighs in at about 170 print pages with a small trim size, so it's something you can take with you on a plane trip and maybe finish. Yeah, I, I, it's the, these things are all true. It's uh, very, very readable, and it's uh, very, um, it, it's definitely it, 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 like a lot of books that uh, we talk about on the podcast. It's one of those wonderful academic books that's a sort of a crossover book. It's a serious uh, nonfiction book, and it's also an academic book. It has footnotes. Um, yeah. What uh, I, I don't usually ask this. Um, uh, but how did this get? How did you get the idea for this subject? Is this related to your previous book on the cultural boundaries of science? Yeah, uh, the the theme of that book is credibility, mm -hmm. uh, and the link is to be found right there. That particular book, my earlier book, um, sort of got into the issue of boundary work, a concept that I developed, how it is that people discursively make distinctions between different domains of knowledge. It could be science, non-science, true, false, um, sure. common sense. Geography, sociology. Yeah, yeah, any of those. Uh, take a domain of knowledge uh, and, and realize that the distinctions that we think are sort of fixed in stone aren't. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're contested, they're negotiated, they're, they're changing, uh, they're porous, uh, all of those things. And there's a, there's a reason for all of that, and, it, and, and the, the important focus is on the credibility of people who are placed on one side or another side of a boundary. Um, you know, you, you become more believable if you can put yourself on the science side of certain debates as opposed to the politics side of certain debates, although that may be changing these days as we speak. Mm. Um, so the, the connection is that I'm still interested in credibility, but less interested uh, in the discursive construction of culturescapes and more in the physical um, um, scape, landscapes of places uh, built and natural, and how those connect. So that's the connection. Uh, I'm a sociologist of science by mm -hmm. training. Um, I play in the field, uh, interdisciplinary field of science and technology studies. Um, that particular area of research has done a lot, I think, in the academy to develop the idea that material things, whether bits of nature or technologies or machines or whatever, uh, have force, kind of a, a causal role to play in things. All I did was take that point, with a little help from Eudora Welty, take that point and say, one of the things that material objects or places do is um, make people believe. That is, they modulate the credibility of of people and claims. To follow up on one of the things you said and be, to, I guess, finish this sort of um, introductory part of the conversation, you, you discussed this book as being uh, against the two trending ideas of post-truth and post-place, and yet you note the way in which um, this uh, the ease of declaring truths online sends people scurrying away from their screens and back to real places. <laughs> I, I was thinking of... Um, even online, something as popular as Atlas Obscura, 
which awesome. focuses on odd, interesting places uh, and is a very heavily visited site. It, it, it's a way in which there's a, a mediation of access to those real places online first. And we'll, we'll have other examples of that when we, in a bit. Yeah, I know we're going to talk about Delphi shortly. And, and even in the book, I recommend heartily that readers go to some site like that or another one where they can actually see a gazillion pictures of Delphi. There are no pictures in my book, which mm -hmm. is kind of funny for a book about places. That's partly because they're all online. I didn't have to do it. But the idea of post-truth and post-place, none of those, neither of those makes much sense to me. Uh, we still seek truth, even if it's difficult to find. Uh, I didn't want this to be a heavy epistemological tome. I simply wanted to recognize that people have to make choices about what to believe, uh, whether it's a scientific claim, political, identity, historical, all of those. People need to decide. And those decisions are in part affected by place. I reject the notion that places have all become the same. Um, and I reject the notion that because of the digital world we've created, that the physical real world places uh, don't matter anymore. I think that line scurrying away from their screens and back to real places, I, I just now thought about it. It's, it's kind of an anticipation of what we'll talk about later with Thoreau at Walden. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that Thoreau did uh, is he railed against the coffee shops of Boston and, and Concord. Uh, he said, you're not going to find the truth there with people chattering away, even if those people are learned professors from Harvard, uh, where he, in fact, was a student for a while. Um, and the contrast between the busy coffee shop with lots of people chattering uh, and the solitude of Walden Pond is is critically important for him getting us to believe what he says about life in the universe. Uh, but I, I think this idea of scurrying away from their screens, mm. in a way, um, it's like the Twitter sphere is the Boston and Cambridge or uh, Boston or Cambridge or Concord coffee shop. Um, there's very little accountability. Talk is not only cheap; it's almost free. And somehow we're missing the hard-won nature of truth that, that Thoreau discovered at Walden. So uh, I'm beginning to wonder if people are just so inured to the credibility of whatever comes across on the screen that they have to go back and ground it somewhere to check it out for themselves. That was Thoreau's message. That, that's a very interesting uh, point about the hard, truth is hard-won even at these places. Mm -hmm. um, as well, Delphi is um, where the Oracle of Apollo um, sat above the volcanic vents. Um, <laughs> the, the Oracle doesn't speak in plain language. Um, truth is hard won from the Oracle. It's hard to figure out what she means or what the, what the God means when the God speaks to you. Um, yeah. At all these places, truth is hard won. It's no, no less than in other in engaging with... Uh, with a teacher, either by yep. in by, either personally or in a book. Um, yep. So Delphi, um, mother of all truth spots. Why? Uh, it was not the first chapter I wrote. Actually, <laughs> Walden was written before that, and a couple of others too. So Delphi became uh, first in the book, partly because of historical precedents, but more because. Um, 
it really allowed me to make the argument of the book extremely well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've got to say, Al, that the point of the book and the reason why I had chapters after Delphi uh, is because each of these truth spots works in a different way. There are things about location, materiality, and narration that figure differently to convince people about yes. the truth. And, and you got all these examples of different kinds of truth, scientific, philosophical, legal, identity, historical. They're not they're not going to work the same way. So Delphi is not a model for the rest of the um, book, so much as one really good illustration of how the three defining features of place make people believe. So, which are uh, if, do you want me say, to run through? Yeah, which are location, materiality, and narration. So uh, just to so, rehearse that, what are what are how do those three things appear at uh, Delphi? Uh, uh, briefly, because it's the whole chapter, really, or at yeah. least the historical part. Um, why the the problem is why did the representatives of the archaic, what would become Greek city states, go up uh, a long, long and arduous trip up Mar Mount Parnassus from wherever they happen to live, and seek prophecy and come away believing that what they heard from the priestess there at the vents at the Temple of Apollo was in fact an accurate rendering of the future. Uh, location mattered, importantly, in the following sense. Delphi was nowhere near any of the established city-states. It was kind of uh, no person's land, if I can say that. Um, it, it was picked, in effect, by the gods themselves. And this is where the narration comes. Um, uh, Zeus released two golden eagles from the ends of the earth, and they flew together and they met putatively the center of the universe, and they dropped a stone, the Omphalus, and that became Delphi. The remoteness of Delphi is important. It's important for the perceived objectivity of the prophecies. Delphi was not beholden to anybody other than the people who came seeking the truth. It was not under the control of the Athenians or the Corinthians or uh, the Spartans. It was, in a sense, um, open land, common land owned by no one. And therefore, the, the claims about the future, the prophecies, um, took on a certain kind of objectivity that I find terribly interesting. Mm -hmm. By the way, the oracular tradition is found in many cultures, and the same pattern turns up, mm -hmm. that the site of the oracle is um, politically unclaimed land. Otherwise, it would be sullied, right, by mm -hmm. personal interest of whoever controlled it. The materiality is also interest, and I'll just give one example. Um, if you walk up even today, but certainly it was the case back uh, in the archaic period, roughly 5th century BC on into AD, you walked up the side of the hill to the Temple of Apollo, and as you walked up, you passed by glorious sequence of temples. Um, they're called treasuries. They were built by the Athenians, the Corinthians, the Spartans. Um, why? In gratitude for successful prophecies received. Now, if you're arriving at Delphi and you're walking up and you look at the Athenian treasury and you see this beautiful building with all kinds of riches inside, you got to think, my God, they invested all of that for what reason? Because the prophecy lied or got it wrong? No, because they're grateful that they got it right. Setting aside what you said about the ambiguity of uh, the prophecies, the temple's 
which form the materiality before you get to the actual temple of Apollo, um, it's, it's kind of a persuasive set of buildings along the way yes. that attest to the correctness of those prophecies received. Uh, yes, and the importance of where you're going, too. Absolutely. They yeah. set it up. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a processive uh, way, uh, in, in, in a way that leads, it leads to the third criteria of narration. You're walking through a story of what the God has done for Athens, Sparta, Thebes, and on and on and on. That's, and you're walking through that story. That's right. But remember, as you walk, you're in a place. Mm -hmm. It would be one thing to sit anywhere in Thebes or Athens and tell the story. It's quite a matter to process through, first to go away from Athens or Thebes, and to arrive in a place where you literally walk through um, a set of monuments designed to convince you that this is believable stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The narration. Uh, that's, that was the story of the eagles flying Got from it. the uh, two ends of the earth. I mean, uh, they all th these stories were shared. They, sure. the, everybody knew them. Uh, so you I, walk to Delphi then and now with these stories in and, your mind. And I think also the narration part, then the accretion of other stories of Themistocles uh, sending messengers to the oracle and the oracle saying uh, Athens shall be protected by its wooden walls. Um, that then shows up in Herodotus. People read Herodotus, hear Herodotus read, and therefore that's added to the two eagles meeting at Delphi. And layer upon layer upon layer um, of, of, and up to the present. I, if there's another reason why the book begins with Delphi, uh, it's because I'm able to, to do two places in one, two truth mm -hmm. spots in one. That is the Delphi for uh, archaic Greeks and the Delphi for the contemporary tourist. Yes. And again, if you, if you say, well, for the archaic Greeks, the question was, why should we believe these uh, uh, prognostications about the future? The problem is quite different for the tourist today. Why should I believe the assertions about the past mm -hmm. made by the, by the curators and the historians and the archaeologists who work on the site of Delphi. I mean, why should I accept as true a claim that this was believed to be the center of the universe, that people came and spent riches building these treasuries uh, to attest to the success of the prophecy? Um, and if you just take that question, I get to combine two very different problems that were solved in different ways. Uh, for the tourists today, um, it, it, it's interesting. The, the site itself, setting aside the, the modern museum that houses some of the, art, the, the fragile um, artifacts, if you just look at the sacred way going up to the temple, uh, they could have left it the way it was after about the fourth or fifth century, after earthquakes and uh, attacking uh, cultures of all sorts, left it an absolute ruin. There was not much there to the point where it essentially disappeared until much later archaeological work uh, actually d found the place again. It was gone. It was just a mountainside with a bunch of stones. Um, they couldn't have left it that way um, because that's not very persuasive that long ago somebody believed this was the site of, of predictive truth and the center of the universe. On the other hand, 
they didn't want to rebuild the whole thing into Disneyland because that would have made it a kind of theme park that would have, I think, challenged some of the credibility that the historians and archaeologists were trying to achieve. So if you ask, how does Delphi today convince tourists, they found a middle ground. So the uh, Athenian treasury has been rebuilt almost completely. It's a relatively small building. No other building is completed that way. Of the columns of the original Temple of Apollo, about a half a dozen of them are up. Um, the stones are around, but it's that that kind of netherworld between the way it was mm -hmm. uh, and the way it was at the end when it was just a bunch of stone on the mountainside. That's the truth-producing quality uh, of Delphi for the modern tourist. Let's move on to a very different site, Walden Pond, with two miles from the center of Concord Village in Massachusetts. Uh, could you describe the pond first for those of who haven't been there? Yeah, I, I've been there twice, um, uh, as I say in the book, both on really cold um, occasions. <laughs> uh, bitter cold in the wintertime, which is the time I recommend to go. Um, because you'll find this is, this is not a large body of water, large enough to attract loons then and now. Uh, but in the summertime, the place is overrun with people swimming. There's a public beach there. Um, but it is a pilgrimage site now, um, and um, it is unbuilt. It is a reserve, a park as such, the interpretive center where you can buy gobs of Thorovian uh, <laughs> memorabilia uh, is across the street. Even the parking lot is. It's, it's, well, let me put it this way, and this gets into the argument. It's about as pristine now as it was um, in the early 19th century for Thoreau, which is to say that Thoreau exaggerates its pristine quality. And that was part of what he was trying to do. Uh, once again, I have to remind listeners that I'm not a literary critic. So this is bizarre territory for a sociologist. But if you take that basic sociological problem that Thoreau faced, how should I convince my readers to accept as true my philosophical wisdom mm. uh, about their lives and common sense? He takes that place, Walden Pond, and gives it three features beyond the water, the depth of the water, the woods, and all the other things he describes. It has three features um, that are critically important for it serving as a truth spot. It's distant from those coffee houses with the chattering folks who aren't going to find wisdom there. You're going to find wisdom in said in solitude. It's you confronting the reality of God's nature. Therein lies the truth. And, and Thoreau, even though Walden Pond was an easy walk from Concord, and many people did it, some people more often than, than to visit Thoreau to see what he was up to. Um, it, it wasn't that far, but you'd think it was almost the end of the earth because he was, quote, alone. He was never alone. Friends and relatives would bring food to him there. So, but nevertheless, but solitude. He, yeah, it's, uh, that actually is kind of important. I, was, I actually reread parts of Walden uh, before for this podcast, and um, I liked it much better the second time. 
and, and <laughs> it made me because uh, I, I was you know there there are teenagers who read Walden who become Thorovians and and sort of uh, ironically go and buy that the stuff at the visitor center um, and there are those who probably a minority who rebel against it and I was I was one of them. Um, but it, me, it, it, me. interesting to me that he it had to be in some ways I see now two miles from Concord. He could not do this on the Penobscot River. It's just too far away. Uh, uh, there was there was another if I might interject. Yeah. There was another reason. Yeah. And that is Concord was home to him. Yeah. It was where he was he... a native to that place. Yeah. And really important that he established that firsthand knowledge. I've known this pond since I was a boy, mm. and he gives lots of stories. That carries a risk, and I, I make a big deal of this in a very short chapter of the book. Um, if, you, if you take your knowledge back to a place that is yours, your home, you risk a kind of parochialism that says to readers, well, what Thoreau found at the pond might be good and true for Walden Pond or Concord, but it ain't true here. And one of the things that he does so skillfully in this text, I'm not the first to have seen this, he universalizes the pond. Yes. He's going to say, on the one hand, I know it because it's home, but this home, well, you don't have to go to Zanzibar to find out uh, about cats, right? Mm -hmm. Which is one of his lines. You, you just... You can see um, what? Find yourself a quiet place in the woods and all God's and nature secrets will reveal themselves to you. Um, that's the pond, the it, one he constructs in the text. It, it struck also as I was uh, in my notes, I wrote that uh, I hadn't realized the extent which Thoreau created Concord as well. Concord is the necessary binary to Walden. Um, people going there, for Concord, I think people go to see Concord now, um, not merely for the battlefield, but for the archetypal village where Thoreau says, you know, I want to gossip with my vi village neighbors. I want to engage with them and all. But I, I, I really what I require is solitude. Yeah, uh, I look, uh, he certainly wanted to get his hard-won truth, his hard-won wisdom out to his villagers. He wrote the book to persuade them to change their ways, in particular those people who didn't leave the coffee houses of Concord. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's go to a very different sort of place. Um, you had alluded to Delphi, uh, reconstruction at Delphi being resisted. Uh, in order to avoid it being a Disneyland, one might also say uh, to avoid it being a Greenfield Village. <laughs> um, so in 1929, Henry Ford inaugurated uh, Greenfield Village. Um, and it is always, I had never really thought too much about this. It's not my period, um, but it is quite fascinating that the man who repeatedly said history is bunk decided to create a historical village. But as many have pointed out, um, it's not historical at all, or is it? So uh, <laughs> so Greenfield Village, uh, please explain the sort of this hodgepodge of, of a site and how it relates to Ford's vision of the past. Yeah, to, to be completely fair to Henry Ford, uh, the history is bunk line uh, is typically used to show that that Ford was aware of the fact that that by his work, 
developing cars and assembly lines and so forth, he was changing the past. History is bunk. Mm -hmm. That's actually not right. Mm -mm. The line is history is bunk as it's taught in the schools and the textbooks. Right. And, and Ford built the village, Greenfield Village, outside of Detroit to tell history in a way that he thought, well, was more persuasive and convincing. It's the, very interesting. He wants to avoid the great man theory of history. He wants to avoid the battles and politics. Uh, he doesn't, it's, he's not exactly a social history advocate, but he believes it's technology. It's that, that sort of, those sorts of advances. I, I think I agree, except for the following. Yeah. Um, it, he, there's a little bit of a great man theory in well, that you're right. um, building this building this village in the face of the depression ford was desperate to convince the american people that we were going to get out of this mess we were going to rise up again fulfill all the promises of the of america and the people that would lead it would be the people that led it in the past the the entrepreneurial capitalists like himself and Edison and the Wright brothers and uh, Luther Burbank Harvey, and Firestone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so what what he did, uh, and this is just remarkable. Why I call it a, a Potomkin village as well as a Greenfield village, is that it is the most incredible piece of artifice, physical artifice that I think I've ever seen. He moved houses. Uh, that were significant in the lives of the Wright brothers, the bicycle shop from Dayton. He moved one of the laboratories of Edison from Menlo Park, New Jersey, and assemble, assembles them around a village green, putative a New England village green, which is completely out of place in suburban Detroit. Um, and why? Because Ford's message really was a simple one, that that village life, that small town life, was the crucible for the men, these mm -hmm. entrepreneurial capitalists, who brought you progress and will bring you progress again. The irony, of course, there's a double irony. One of them is it's a totally artificial place. It's completely fabricated, uh, made up to make you believe something true about the past and the future. Um, it. <laughs> uh, I can't tell you how goofy. There's a line in there that I took from somebody who did some <laughs> research with people there. Uh, one of the visitors to Greenfield Village told one of the researchers that, my goodness, I had no idea that Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and the Wright brothers all lived on the same street. Yeah. Uh, well, of course, she bought the message hook, line, and sinker. So um, the other thing, the other irony, uh, besides the invented character or artificial inauthentic character of Greenfield Village um, is the fact that that Ford himself, outside of the walls of Greenfield Village, was in fact as responsible as anybody for destroying the village, um, the real village, the small town America, uh, that he said is going to be the crucible of the next crucible of the next generation of entrepreneurs who will help us out of the depression. Yeah, I what actually an, I, I actually found that that ambivalence the most touching thing. I had not realized that before about Henry Ford, uh, and the way in which uh, he is quite vocal in places about the 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 drudgery of farm labor and how much he had hated it, and yet he, he recreates the village just on the cusp of the revolutionary changes of which he's one of the uh, initiators, but just that he recreates the village just as it was when he was laboring away in that drudgery. 
And you won't find at Greenfield Village the full-blown assembly line. You'll find that down the road at the River Rouge plant, the mm -hmm. assembly line there. What he puts into the village, Greenfield Village, are the far simpler tools that he used early on uh, to do what we would consider a kind of craft work yeah. in fashioning the Model Ts and the Model As. This is what he, he didn't want, it wasn't romantic. He didn't want to go back to that era, but he did want to know what was going to get us out of the depression and on into a much more successful and progressive world. And it was the village. <laughs> you, I, I hadn't realized that he had uh, attempted to create a, uh, first of all, he had the soybean lab was also in Greenfield Village. Yeah. Uh, people might re remember, um, for those who are interested in such things, there's, I think there's a famous picture of Ford with a sledgehammer, I think during World War II, um, pounding on the back of a, a panel of a Ford which has been made into like it basically they've used soybeans to make it into a, a early plastic um, yep. uh, body panel. So he's got the soybean lab there, but he's also, he, this is related to an initiative to create parts manufacturers uh, throughout Michigan that are water powered based on mill sites, yep. uh, which will recreate some sort of industrial villages, which I, if, I had no idea that he had done something like that. This is fully consistent with what he did in Greenfield Village. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, it was in those small towns. I grew up in Detroit. My family goes back two generations on both my mother and my father's side. So this chapter was kind of uh, uh, memory lane for me. I remember Greenfield Village as a kid. My father actually worked in Manchester, Michigan, a small town not far from Ann Arbor, uh, that was one of these mill towns. Hmm. It's a small, it's a, it's a dead place right now, thanks to Henry Ford. But at the time, because of that mill, it manufactured a particular part for the uh, the cars that Ford was assembling at River Rouge. Huh. Um, what uh, what struck me when I was, what, why did you decide to do this rather than say Colonial Williamsburg? Why, why Greenfield Village? I, I, I have some ideas, but I, I'd like to hear what I, you have to say. I, you know, um, partly because I remember Greenfield Village as a kid yeah. and going back there was, was something meaningful. Uh, it was also the utter sheer coincidence of on the same visit, my wife and I went back to Greenfield Village. Uh, we also went to the Detroit Institute of Arts, yes. which was putting on a special exhibition of Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, Frida Kahlo in Detroit, uh, fo focused on uh, Diego Rivera's impressive socialist realist mural Detroit industry, which fills the garden court of the uh, Detroit Institute of Art. Uh, another piece of culture that I remember from being a kid, though I had no idea. And I'll tell you why I wrote about Greenfield Village, because it set up a particular story of entrepreneurial capitalism that was then denied in another place uh, about a half hour, 45 minute drive away, depending on traffic at the Detroit Institute of Arts. Rivera kind of filled in all of the gaps that Ford left out of Greenfield Village. You left out the story of dehumanizing workers. You left out the story of uh, the pollution created by uh, these factories. Um, Rivera puts all of that in, in a particularly powerful way on his murals. It's a place. I had to decide whether a mural, a piece of art, is a place. 
And I decided it could be because you are literally in that garden court surrounded by mm -hmm. these massive pictures showing, well, Detroit industry, uh, showing all the things that Ford left out of Greenfield Village, the juxtaposition of those two truth spots, both claiming this is the story of entrepreneurial capitalism is why I, I ended up choosing Greenfield Village over any of the other historical reconstructions around the country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I, 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 what was, that was a fascinating juxtaposition, um, especially pr because of Rivera's apparent fascination with Greenfield Village. Um, <laughs> It, it's remarkable. He he loved the place. And he and Ford became friends. I mentioned in the book how um, Frida Kahlo and, and Ford would folk dance together. Uh, Ford was really into folk dancing, and so was she. Um, yeah, it's um, despite that, their common bond, by the way, was something you mentioned before, Al. They had a common bond, um, a kind of faith in technology to mm -hmm. free up human labor. Yeah. But of course, you could read that in a capitalist way or in a socialist communistic way, as, as Rivera did. Um, well, you know, I would get the weight off the workers. I would say historically, you know, there's a very interesting uh, progressive link uh, between Ford's um, sometimes uh, he's on the strange the, the border there between fascism and, and socialism is is closer than we might think uh, from retrospective uh, studies. Uh, the, the, there's a very interesting nexus there within the progressive mindset of the 20s. Uh, yeah. It's not clear to me whether the pollution for Rivera is a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, the yeah. bellowing smokestacks, after all. They're a sign in, in Stalin's Russia or a sign of civilization and modernity. Did I guess what you're saying is, depending on how you read Marx, Ford was vitally important to the revolution. Exactly. He was extraordinarily important to the revolution. Um, after all, it's, you know, Fordism, right? I mean, Aldous Huxley <laughs> and so on. Um, finally, uh, there, there are many other places we could talk about. We're already up over our usual time limit. Um, you go into the, the, the way of the Camino de Santiago, which is fascinating. Um, you go into uh, three places mentioned in Barack Obama's second inaugural address, um, and also into clean labs, which we could take a lot of time talking about, oddly enough. Uh, but I want to focus on your coda for the last four, uh, few minutes. Um, you write... Some places persuade us of the truth even when we arrive there believing something contrary or in a state of doubt. Now, I, I think we've made some suggestions about uh, an answer uh, to this question I'm about to ask you. Uh, but how do places make uh, people believe? Um, in different ways, which is not a dodge of the question at all. But to realize that the reason why I wrote about all those places and a courthouse to boot yeah. um, right, courthouse. is because it. they do so in different ways. Um, just take one dimension uh, of what places do to make people believe. Um, the distinction between um, a place made and a place found, okay? Mm -hmm. um, Thoreau certainly textually made Walden Pond, but he presented it as something found, something come upon, something pristine, something that was not an artifact of human work, but God's work. Um, that contrasts significantly to what Henry Ford did at Greenfield Village. He made something. The artifice is inescapable even to the tourist 
who, who I mentioned before about the three inventors living on the same street. I mean, so truth spots work in fundamentally different ways. And when I tried to wrap this book up, uh, I realized that the best I could do by way of conclusion is to say, these places work in sometimes contradictory ways. A piece of nature and a built artifice that's designed carefully to inscribe a story in a place, in materiality, in a location, both of, this, both of them in different ways can make people believe. And the coda, which is my way of wrapping up, a book that doesn't have a lot of theoretical stuff in it, mm -hmm. um, is a way of, of just sort of summarizing the fact that places can do that. They can persuade people in very, very different ways. Yeah, I don't want to go through the entire list. I want people to read the book. Um, <laughs> but what what do you, let's 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 uh, discuss one at least. Um, places uh, places manipulate time. That's the first one, and it's probably the one that's most on my mind as a historian. Uh, what do you mean by places manipulate time? Um, it's it's like places become time machines. Yeah. They they freeze a past. Um, but usually are carefully curated to freeze a particular past. We know that. Um, the commemorative sites you mentioned, like Selma and Seneca Falls, any of those national, or Stonewall Inn for that matter, mm -hmm. any of those are carefully curated to remind us of a particular story of the past. Okay? But you mentioned Ford, Ford's soybean factory. What's that? It's also a, a time machine because what it's doing is trying to bring into being a certain future, mm -hmm. okay? To convince us of the possibility, the practicality of soybean as a fuel for gasoline. How do you do that? Well, you build a prototype and it was a place, it was a traveling place, which I find interesting. It was at the Chicago Century of Progress World's Fair for a while. Ford then brought it back and put the soybean factory in Greenfield Village where you can see it today. Um, time machine, sometimes places, truth spots, freeze a certain version of the past and they anticipate a certain future to make that future all the more believable. Mm -hmm. I, this is, uh, I, I've mentioned Colonial Williamsburg. It's about an uh, hour and a half from here. I've been associated with him in the past as a fellow and so on. So I guess that's what I have to say in this age of full disclosure. Uh, but it's when you walk from the visitor center into the historic district, they very cleverly put a series of markers. Every five feet, you're going back, I don't know, 25 years or something like that. And so they tell you the different, as you're, they're winding back the clock as you, as you go back to 1775 Virginia, um, that they did explicitly what all such places do implicitly and in, in, in sometimes in, in more uh, nuanced and less uh, obvious ways. Mm -hmm. They're they're managing authenticity. Mm -hmm. And um, for someone who grew in a, up in a, uh, a village in New Jersey where the Sunoco station was a 1765 house, um, uh, I miss the um, Colonial Williamsburg of 1925, in which um, colonial places were used as general stores and um, as Sunoco stations. On the other hand, um, there's no denying the power of such places when they're curated uh, yeah. to transforms, transform one's imagination. Yeah. And I think visitors either to Williamsburg 
uh, or Greenfield Village would would quite agree. They quite agree with you. They come away with a vision that would not be there had they not seen it in all of its inauthentic qualities. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the the difference would be, I think, is that someplace like say. Um, to be able in that area of Virginia to go from Jamestown to Williamsburg to Yorktown and mm -hmm. sort of the Mesopotamia of, uh, of the first British empire of the of British America is um, the, to feel, to go through a time machine and to this intangible quality of being in touch with the material of being uh, related to the past in some way which is, as we said at the beginning, is um, it's not just sociologists who are, are unimpressed by that. And yet, uh, as the testimony of tens of thousands of people uh, validate that and, and say that it is important to them, that there's something going on that it seems to me that scholars ignore at, their, at the peril of being ignorant. It, it sounds to me like you've got another uh, a chapter on truth spots working there, Al. Well, I, I mean, we could play this game. I was I started writing down other truth spots. Um, you know, the U.S. Capitol is an interesting case, uh, whether it, it makes it. Um, the fact that it's a, um, that it, I mean, it's very conscientiously created as a truth spot. Sure. The, rotu uh, the rotunda being empty. So the people are there. The fact that the four different sections of Washington, D.C., Washington is not in the center of the country, but the way the district is laid out is to make the capital the center of something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the fact that also all four corners come together beneath the dome. This is all very significant work in trying to create a truth spot. I was I was going to have a capital as a truth spot, but it wasn't Washington. It was Brasilia, uh -huh. uh, because I wanted to make an argument. Uh, if you know the story, that Brasilia, of course, carved out of the jungle mm -hmm. in the 50s and built according to a design by Oscar Niemeyer, who's one of the leaders of the modernist movement, um, and modernism. Uh, architecturally was much more than a style. It was a political statement, as was Brasilia, about the future of Brazil. Mm -hmm. It was an attempt by that nation to shed its colonial past, to develop the interior, uh, to um, settle some of the rival factions in Sao Paulo and Rio. Um, and I, I thought that was a truth spot for claims to nationhood, right? Yes, what sort of so. a nation are we? And it, 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 it would work. The problem is that modernism as a style is is just caught up in so many, what, different discourses, some of them um, a narrative of complete failure. I mean, if you think of Pruitt-Igo um, uh, as a symptom of what, what modernism wrought in the United States via public housing, that's another truth spot, yeah. uh, uh, as is the World Trade Center, another site that I couldn't go near because, like Jerusalem, there was too much. Yeah. Um, but if you think of modernity as more than a style, but a set of claims about how we could build a better world, um, these places like um, Brasilia and Pruitt-Igo become very interesting uh, as signs of possible success or failure yeah, that's of that a, whole that, project. Th there's a great book there for someone who wants to write. I was, I wanted to, you know, there's, it seems to me there's an entire genre that could be developed from this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, there's a great book there on, on the, um, the multivaried nature of modernity, uh, uh, Brasilia, Pruitt-Igo, World Trade Center, and, uh, you know, add more. 
to it. As, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. Oh, you are? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but slowly, and I may run out of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, uh, I, I, that basically, uh, what, what other places, what would you like someone else to do? Uh, you're working on this modernity, but I, I mean, as I said, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of gas in this tank. Um, what, it, it, it seems to me to open up new vistas. I don't think we've, I've talked to anyone on the podcast about someone who's trying to think up a new sub-discipline. Uh, but what other, what other things could be done? Uh, the one I'd like to do, not me, yeah. I'd like to see somebody do is um, where would you propose a place as the most convincing with regard to global climate change? Uh, it strikes me that that this issue, vexatious as it is, is ultimately going to be settled somewhere. Mm -hmm. And the where is the emphasis I want to put. Uh, it could be a place like Vanuatu, which is one of these islands in the Pacific that's going under. Uh, it could be the iceberg melting in Alaska and, you know, the last vestiges. Uh, one could one could really see these as truth spots where it, on the one hand, it's impossible to deny that something is happening. And yet, by virtue of locating it at a place like Vanuatu or the iceberg in Alaska, you can't see the causal connection. Mm -hmm. So you somehow have to connect Vanuatu and the coal fields of southwestern Indiana and the power plants that burn that very dirty coal. You've got to make those connections. So in a way, it's a subversive, I guess, criticism of the idea that there is going to be a truth spot that's going to solve all of our thinking about global climate change. Um, or is it just the, the need to multiply truth spots to tell the story of, of human-made um, global warming? My guest today has been Tom Guerin. He's the author of Truth Spots, How Places Make People Believe, and You Must Read It. Tom, thanks so much for being on Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.